Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Well, good morning, church. Uh, this is a time in our service where we normally dismiss our kiddos, but this is the third Sunday of the month, and so they get to sit in big church with us. Um, so uh, sh- sh- buckle your seat belts, right? Uh, there might be a little more noise in here than there is usually, but that's okay. Um, if you're new with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning on this rainy Sunday. Uh, as we hear the thunder rumbling outside, uh, when you came in, you should have found a card somewhere around where you're seated. It has place for guest information on one side, prayer requests on the other. If there are things we could pray with you or for you about or questions we can answer, if you want to fill out one of those cards, drop it in the box at the kiosk on your way out. Uh, we'd love to connect with you, pray with you, or just answer any questions you may have about our church. Um, we are in a series through the book of Colossians, and we find ourselves this morning in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. It'll be on the screen behind me as I read it. If you don't have a copy in front of you, you can follow along there as well. But Colossians chapter 3, we'll pick up reading in verse 1 and read through verse 4 as the Apostle Paul continues uh, his argument to the church at Colossae. Here we go. Colossians chapter one, or chapter three, beginning in verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is God's word. I don't know if you've ever been sitting across a table for some, from someone, uh, maybe in your home or at a coffee shop, or perhaps you've been sitting in an auditorium like this one, listening to someone else talk, and they go on and on and on. Some of you are like, yeah, I feel that way every single Sunday, right? Uh, but if you've ever been listening to someone go on and on and on and on, and you're asking yourself the question in your mind, so what? <laughs> like, so what? What difference does any of this make? And in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul has been really expounding a lot of deep theology in chapter 1, and then telling us what to be on guard against in chapter 2. And then he gets to chapter 3, and whenever he opens chapter 3, he shifts gears from a theological discourse to answering the question, so what? Like what difference does all of this that he's laid out for us in this argument, what difference does it make in our lives? And so as we look at Colossians chapter 3, coming on the heels of what we did last week as we considered how to measure maturity, and we said we measure maturity by our growth in grace, not by our observance of external regulations or rituals, but by our growth in grace. And so Paul answers the question, how do we, I think he begins to answer the question in Colossians 3, how do we go about growing in grace? If we measure our maturity by that growth, how, how do we grow in grace? How do we move forward? How do we mature? How do we develop? 
And he gives us the answer to the question, so what, to all this theology he's been laying out in the first couple of chapters. And so I want to dive right into what I believe he says here in this passage and consider in Colossians chapter 3 how it is that we grow in grace. What is the so what of all the theology he's been laying out for us? And I want to do that, begin answering that so what question and considering how we grow in grace by saying it this way, that what Paul has in mind here for us is that we would learn to live out our new identity, that we would learn to live out our new identity. Now, I've had the privilege over the course of my adult life to have walked with a number of people who have adopted children into their homes. I've known folks who have adopted domestically here from locally here in the Dallas area or across the U.S. I've known folks who have adopted internationally. They've adopted from Russia or countries in Africa. I've known a number of folks who have adopted children. And so all their adoption stories are unique. Uh, They're all a little bit different. But there are some similar themes that run through every adoption story. And one of those themes is that the older the child is whenever they are adopted, typically the longer it takes them to acclimate to their new environment, right? Because they already have certain uh, defense mechanisms and already have certain ways of acting and thinking and living imprinted upon their minds and their hearts, So the older the child is, the longer it takes them to adapt, and the more trauma they've experienced prior to their adoption, the longer it takes them to adapt to their new environment. In fact, we've known families, my wife and I have known families who struggled for years with children that they adopted into their home. Uh, to see them grow and mature, come to an understanding of the fact that they were loved, that they were accepted, that they were wanted, that they were a part of this new family. It took them years to acclimate to that reality. So that's one common denominator. Another common denominator between all those adoption stories is this, is that as soon as the judge signs the papers, issues the edict, right, makes the declaration that this child who was once homeless, fatherless, motherless, is now a part of this family, that child immediately has a new name, and they immediately have a new family, and they immediately have a new identity. Immediately. While that identity may take years to unfold in the reality of their everyday lives in their homes. And I believe our spiritual reality is very much the same. In fact, the Apostle Paul is going to use that language of adoption elsewhere to describe what's taken place as God our Father has set His affection upon us as His children and He's brought us into His family at great cost to Himself by sending His Son. And through our faith in Him, we've received this new identity. Listen, this has been at the heart of Paul's argument in chapter 2 and now into the beginning of chapter 3. Let's see if we can trace that here for a moment. In 2.20, if you go back into chapter 2 in 2.20, Paul argues that if you died with Christ, then you should no longer submit to the worldly principles of measuring spiritual maturity by external regulations or rituals. If you died with Christ. In 2.12, Paul argues that on account of the new birth depicted in our baptism in which we were buried with Christ and raised with Christ, right, that we have this 
power now to not be taken captive by empty and deceptive philosophy. In 3.3, the text we just read this morning, Paul argues that through our death and burial with Christ, that our life is now hidden with Christ or in Christ with God. Right? So we're this union with Jesus. In chapter uh, 3, verse 4, Paul's going to argue that when Jesus appears in all his glory in the future, then we who are in Christ, with Christ, will appear with him in glory. In 3.4, he also says very pointedly, Jesus, who is our life. You see that argument flow from chapter 2 into chapter 3 of this identity that we now have through union with Jesus, that we've been died with him, we've been buried with him, we've been raised with him, we will be glorified with him in the future, and he is right now in the present, our life, our vitality. So for the Christian, listen, everything makes sense only when seen in terms of our identity, our relationship, and our union with Christ. We're with Him in His death, with Him in His rising, and we will be with Him when He comes again to consummate His glory in His kingdom. Now let's take a moment to consider what this means, and I love the way Sam Storms puts it in his book, The Hope of Glory. I want you to hear his words exactly, because I can't say them any better. In fact, there are very few things that I could say any better than anybody who writes out there. But listen, this is what he says. He says, dying with Christ points to the definitive and irreversible split with the old life in which we were once immersed. We are to be as lifeless and insensible to it, that old life, as a corpse is to the stimuli of the world in which it once existed. Likewise, being raised with Christ points to our new status that requires a new ethic and a new lifestyle, one that Paul will outline in some detail in verses 5 and following. He says, by virtue of our having died with Christ, we've been set free from something, namely the elemental powers back in chapter 2. By virtue of our having been raised with Christ, we've also been set free for something, namely a new life in Him. Our death with Christ severed any links we had with the values and life of the present world order. And our resurrection with Christ united and connected us with the new heavenly eternal order. Again, we died with him to our old ways and we've been raised with him to his new ways. This union with Christ, our identity is now interconnected with his. So we have this new identity in Christ severed from our past. We have the hope of glory in the future and we're empowered in the present to reorient everything around this new identity. That's the Christian life. That's what it is to grow in grace. That's the so what to this argument that Paul has been threading. That we reorient everything in our lives around this new identity. Now let me see if I can make it plain for you this morning. And every transition in life requires reorientation, doesn't it? Every single one. Not just adoption. Every single one. Right? Whenever you go from, let me see if I can break it down. When you go from a high school to college, it requires a drastic reorientation. 
okay? Because contrary to popular belief, your college professor is not going to email your parents telling them you're missing an assignment, okay? Every once in a while, I still get emails like that coming from Rockwall ISD, right? But they're not gonna email you telling you that your student is missing an assignment so that you can call your student who's on a college campus hours away studying and preparing for a vocation that they are missing an assignment and they need to follow up on that. No, why? Because their expectation is that you've reoriented, you've matured and developed to a point where now you are responsible for your own things. Right? It requires a reorientation. Right? Because listen, on that college campus, in that dorm room, mom and dad are not going to be knocking on the door at 7 a.m. to get you up and ready for a 745 class. Right? You have to take on that onus of responsibility for yourself. And listen, parents, listen, I, I know the struggle is real. Right? Because we're trying to prepare our kids for that. Okay? One day to be responsible for themselves. But it requires this reorientation. Whenever you go from the college to the workplace, right, that requires a reorientation. Whenever you go from being single to married, or if you go the other direction through death or divorce from being married to single, it's a reorientation and a reordering of your life. When you go from being a young married couple to young parents, Oh, right, that's a drastic reorientation because now the needs of your children supersede your own needs as you give of yourself. And listen, it roots out all kinds of selfishness that you never knew was there, right? As you reorder your life and reorient your life, every single transition that you go through in life requires this reordering. It requires this reorientation. When you go from having a full house to an empty nest, it requires this reorientation or a reordering of life in these new realities with this identity that you have. And so why would not the most drastic transition to go from death to life, from despair to hope, from darkness to light, not require the most drastic reorientation and reordering of your life around a new identity. In verse one of chapter three, Paul says it this way. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, do something. <laughs> and we're gonna get to the something here in a minute. Other translations word it not as a condition, but as an assumption. They say, since then you have been raised with Christ. Do something. Reorder your life. Reorient it around this new identity that you have. Precisely because you've experienced this definitive break with the past through dying and being buried with Jesus. And precisely because you've been raised with Him to new ways of thinking, new ways of living, new ways of valuing, new ways of ordering your time and loves and affections. Live out your new identity. Live it out. Now, I want to say something before we move on here. Your life, your life, listen, it should be lived from this new identity, not for a new identity. There's a big difference in those two words, from and for. 
What Paul is talking about here, he is assuming that his audience in Colossae has indeed been raised with Christ. They are Christians, placed their confidence in the finished work of Jesus, been united to Him in faith. Something that God has done. He has hidden their life. In fact, that is some of you like, no, I get real geeky about grammar. That is a perfect passive verb. Here's what that means. It means it's something you didn't do, but was done to you by someone else, that God took you and hid you in Christ, united you to Him. And it's a perfect tense verb, which describes something that took place in the past that continues to have implications in the present. So it's carried forward for you. That God did this. He gave you as a gift of grace this new identity and hid you in Jesus. It was His work. So you and I are not laboring for an identity if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, everything that you do is for an identity. Because there's no other identity that's just given to you as a gift of grace. Every other one you have to earn. But if you're in Christ, you're not working for God's acceptance, for God's love. You're working from His acceptance and from His love that has been lavished upon you as He's taken and hidden you in Christ. That's good news, church. So we get to live out this new identity. That's what it is to grow in grace. We become more of who we are in Christ over the course of time as adopted children into His family. But how do we go about doing this? And Paul gives us two commands. He says there's two things that we do to live out this new identity if then, since then, you've been raised with Christ. And I would say it this way. He tells us that these, two, that these two things that we do are seeking and setting. They're seeking and setting. In verses 1 and 2, Paul issues two commands. He says to seek and to set. Seeking has to do with our wills, and setting has to do with our mind. See, there's something that we are to seek with our will, pursue with a strength of character, to resolve the chase after with our lives. This seeking is an active and intentional endeavor. Anytime we seek something, listen, we're initiating. We're pursuing. We're willfully putting forth energy in a chase of something that we're trying to take hold of. In addition, he says there's something that we're setting our minds upon. We're directing our thoughts toward. We're putting our minds to. This idea of setting is also active and intentional. Anytime we're setting our minds to something, we're contemplating, we're weighing, we're evaluating to make a judgment decision on the basis of the value of a particular object. So we're setting our minds actively. We're seeking with our wills actively. Now let me see if I can put it street level. Listen, in the process of purchasing a new vehicle, I am seeking and setting. <laughs> Okay? I have a son who in just a short two months is going to be on the roads driving independently in our community. Okay? He will turn 16 in September, early September. Mark your calendars. Okay? <laughs> uh, but as he pursues right, his own autonomy and independence behind the wheel of a vehicle, 
My plan was to give him my truck, which has 240,000 miles on it, serves me well, right? And then to go buy another used truck for myself. And so as I've begun the process of researching used vehicles, which if you, listen, I haven't bought a car in nine years, okay? And so that landscape has changed drastically over the course of that time. Okay, so in the process of seeking another used truck for myself, I am both seeking and setting, okay? I'm actively initiating, I'm searching online through car gurus and auto trader and dealership websites. I'm looking at vehicles, I'm initiating, pursuing this, going to dealerships, test driving vehicles. It's an active pursuit of something that I'm trying to take hold of but I'm also setting, because in that same process, I'm looking, right? I'm evaluating all the options on the vehicle, all the features of the vehicle, the age of the vehicle, the mileage of the vehicle, the reliability reports by J.D. Powers and Associates of that vehicle and that year and that make and model to determine whether or not it's going to have some longevity and life left in it, right? So I'm evaluating. I'm weighing the value of that vehicle as I pursue to take hold of it. That's what Paul is talking about here. That's the reality, he says. As we live, to live out this new identity, it requires this active pursuit, engagement, initiating, chasing, but it also requires evaluating, thinking, weighing, determining value. And each of these commands, listen, to seek and to set, they are present tense verbs, which means this, they are not a one and done event, right? You don't go to a conference and it's over, right? They are an ongoing reality in the everyday occasions of our life. They are repetitious. And the degree to which we seek and set is the degree to which we will live out this new identity that God has given us as a gift of His grace in Christ. Let me see if I can make it, illustrate it for you this way. When, when you're physically training, listen, your body goes through physical adaptations. I did a lot of research on this years ago. I, I I've, haven't haven't done much since I herniated my L5-S1 disc, Um, but prior to that, I was running 40, 50, 60 miles sometimes every week, and in that process, as I was training for marathons and half marathons, I did a lot of research on how your body responds to ongoing stimuli of training, okay, and so if you will train consistently, repetitiously, day after day after day, your body actually changes, did you know that? Your, capa- your lungs' capacity to process oxygen, right, and to distribute it to your body and your muscles, it increases and grows. Your VO2 max, if you've ever seen that term thrown around out there, right? It increases your lungs' capacity to do that. In addition, as you train consistently, repetitiously, and daily, what happens is your body right, begins to deliver that oxygen through your blood vessels to your muscles, and what it does is phenomenal physiologically, but your body actually begins to grow new blood vessels. It begins to grow new capillaries, 
which then allow it to take more oxygen to your muscles, which allow them to operate more efficiently without the buildup of lactic acid. You know what lactic acid is? It's that stuff that makes your legs feel super heavy, okay? Like if you ever, ever run before, any distance at all, and you get to the end of the run, and your legs feel like you have like cinder blocks attached to them, that's lactic acid buildup. But the more those capillaries spread, the more oxygen they provide, the more efficient your muscles become, and the greater stimulus they can endure. Because your body actually changes, it adapts physically through this daily, repetitious, reality. Now those changes, those adaptations, they don't happen if you get on the elliptical machine for 20 minutes once a month. (laughs) Okay? Those things don't happen. But if you do it every day, every day, right, all of a sudden you realize, I'm not as winded when I walk up the stairs. Why? Because your lung capacity, your body's ability to process oxygen, it grows, it increases. My legs don't feel as heavy whenever I I take a walk across the arboretum at the end of the day. Why? Because you have more capillaries distributing oxygen to those muscles which need it. There are these physiological adaptations and changes through this daily, consistent, repetitious reality. And that's what Paul has in mind when he says, seek and set. Every day, active, initiating, seeking. Every day, weighing, contemplating, considering. Every day, changes begin to take place. See, through this every day seeking and setting, we're training our mind on what to think and our wills in what to want, what to desire. Training our mind in what we should elevate and value above all things and our wills in what we should execute and follow through on and do. We're training our mind to contemplate the goodness of Jesus and our wills to conduct our lives in a way that glorifies Jesus. We're training ourselves day after day after day. Now one addition here, the objects that we're actively seeking and filling our minds with, Paul says, are the things above. The things above. And in this passage, Paul contrasts the things above with the things below, or literally in the text, the things on earth. Now I want you to hear Sam Storms here again because I think he does a brilliant job of indicating what Paul's not talking about here. He says this, don't think for a moment that Paul is endorsing the view that the world above is the truly spiritual and pure one, whereas nothing in this life is worth working to redeem or preserve. Salvation is not the release of the spirit from the prison of our physical bodies so that we can be unsullied and unsoiled, soaring in some ethereal realm of a distant eternity. He means that the power and principles of the age to come are to energize us now so that we can influence the earth with the truths and values of heaven. He's not saying we're seeking the things above and setting our minds on the things above to escape the physical reality here. That's not what he's talking about. That is Gnosticism, as Charles and Stanley have helped us understand it. So when Paul refers to the things below or the things on earth, 
He is not talking about the goodness of creation and all that God has made. He's not talking about the beauty of human relationships and the webbing of people knowing one another deeply. He's not talking about the pleasure that we derive from a hard day's work. He's not talking about the pleasure that we derive from leisure or possessions that God may have blessed us with to enjoy. Rather, what he's talking about when he talks about the things below is he's talking about a worldly system that co-ops those things under the dominion of Satan to warp and to distort and to twist those good things into ultimate things. Take good things and make them into God things that we would pursue, that we would seek and set out after those things instead of God. He's talking about those values and goals and principles that conflict with the revelation of God in Scripture. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying body bad. On the flip side, when Paul's talking about things above, he's not talking about some disembodied experience where we get all worked up and have visions or special revelations. He's talking about our love for the truths of God. Our devotion to the principles of Jesus' lordship in our lives. Our affirmation of and submission to eternal values that will characterize life in the new heavens and the new earth. So you see, church, this this difference of the things that are below and the things that are above, they're not just an ethical one, like our behaviors. But as theologians would say, they're an eschatological one. It's the future breaking into the present in the way that we live our lives. Now, I've used this illustration before. Some of you will recognize it, but listen. The way this works is that our lives, as we live out our new identities by seeking the things that are above, actively pursuing the truths of God, setting our minds and filling them with the thoughts of God's kingdom, His values, His vision for human flourishing, as we embrace those things and live out this new identity, we're essentially living today as trailers for the kingdom of God when it comes in all of its fullness. Now, whenever you go to a movie, right, and you, if you get there early enough anyway, okay, all right, whatever the start time says, if you want to just see the movie, get there like 30 minutes later, all right? But whenever you go to a movie and you're sitting in the theater and you're waiting for the feature presentation that you've come to see, they're going to play right, commercials now, uh, but also trailers for upcoming feature films, right, and so they're going to essentially seek to whet your appetite for what's going to be released at a date in the future right now in the present, so they want you to see what's coming so that you will then come back to the theater at some point in the future, pay for another ticket, right, cash out your 401k to get some popcorn and a Coke, okay, and, and go watch this movie that's going to be released, Right? And so they're showing you a, 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 a bit of it in the present so that you will come enjoy its fullness in the future. And listen, church, whenever you think about what it looks like to live out this new identity that we have in Christ by setting our minds on the things that are above and seeking the things of, that are above with active energy, we are living as those trailers in the present for this full feature film of glory in the future. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing by seeking and setting. See, when we, when we set our minds 
on things that are above. Here's what we're doing. We're filling our minds with thoughts of heaven. With the culture of heaven. I think it's what Paul had in mind whenever he says this in Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Direct your mind, because listen, your mind is either going, you're either going to direct it or it's going to be directed by someone else. And so every day, he says, set active intention. Direct your mind to the things that are above, the things that are lovely, the things that are pure, the things that are commendable, the things that are excellent, the things that are noble. Think on those things. Fill and flood your mind with the word of God. Fill and flood your mind with thoughts of glory in the future upon Jesus' return. Fill and flood your mind by memorizing and meditating upon scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. But to seek what's above, we, learn to, we have to learn to bend our will to the values of heaven. We don't just fill our minds with thoughts of heaven, but we learn to bend our wills to the values of heaven. And listen, here's what I think that looks like. I think it looks like learning to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. You love the things that God loves. He loves his creatures and his good creation. What does God love? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But justice and mercy and humility, God loves those things. God loves when the brothers dwell in unity, we're told in the Psalms, when the saints dwell together in harmony and richness of relationships. God loves to see that. God loves to see the reflection of his face in his children as he works to purify and purge them from all of their iniquity, all of that embedded sinful flesh to where he sees a pure reflection of himself whenever he looks at us. He loves to see his glory reflected back to him through his image bearers. Learn to love the things that God loves. Bend your will towards those things. That God loves justice. Not every conception of justice, but God loves justice. I'm gonna pursue biblical justice. God loves humility. I'm gonna walk in humility, not thinking more highly of myself than I should, living out this new identity. God loves mercy. So I will be merciful to others who are around me. I will withhold my wrath from them and I will engage them with kindness and compassion. God loves those things. Do we? Do we love the idea that we exist to reflect the glory of God back to himself? Am I infatuated with that on a daily basis? 
I've learned to hate the things that God hates. What does God hate? He hates haughtiness. He detests pride. He detests uneven measures of acting without integrity in our dealings with other people. See, we're not just talking about this ethereal pie and pie in the sky, by and by. Pie and pie? Yeah, that's not what they say, right? (laughs) But we're talking about this earthy life. God detests and hates the dissolving of a union between husbands and wives. So we work toward the preservation of those. God hates the sacrifice of children. So we work toward the abolishing of that. Not only in clinics, but in our homes and workplaces when we offer our children up on the altar of career advancement. What does God hate? Are we detested by the same things? See, is our will bent towards God's? Are we seeking the things above? Setting our minds on the things above. So we fill our minds with thoughts of heaven. We bend our wills to the values of heaven. And then third, we assist others in their seeking and setting as well. I'm a fan of a lot of things from Louisiana. This is where I grew up. Maybe the one thing that I'm a fan of in the Dallas area, the Dallas Mavericks. Okay? Um, now, I, was, I, was, I, was, I followed them much more closely whenever they were good. <laughs> they have one good player now. Right, and they're trying to build around him. Uh, but I would follow them much more closely back in the days in which they were competing consistently for Western Conference Finals and NBA Championships. All right, making it to the NBA Finals. With Dirk Nowitzki. Amen. Can I get a witness? <laughs> but... And one of the things about basketball, I was never a basketball player growing up, but one of the things about basketball that I can appreciate was basketball from back in the 1980s when I was a kid. I used to watch Larry Bird play basketball. I used to watch Magic Johnson play basketball. I used to watch this guy named John Stockton play basketball for the Utah Jazz. Now John Stockton, right, he may go under the radar of a lot of people's like basketball acumen, but he was a point guard for the Utah Jazz, and he was one of the greatest distributors of the ball to the scores that has ever existed in the history of basketball. And so he would amount assist after assist after assist after assist after assist. Many games, his assist total would be higher than the total points that he scored because that was his job. It was to help others score get to the basket by creating distance and space for them on the court. And so a lot of times he would drive, dribble penetration, and then he would kick out to somebody else who had an open shot. That was his role. And listen, a part of our role as believers is to be those who assist others in their seeking and their setting. That we come alongside others And we work with them to pursue intentionally with energy the things that are above. And to fill our minds and contemplate the glories of heaven to see it become reality in our lives as a trailer for the age to come. We assist them. We may not always be scoring points, 
but we're distributing the ball. And one of the ways that we do that here at Redeemer is through our life groups. Through these small networks or units of men and women, oftentimes other boys and girls who are part of those as well, who come alongside one another to encourage each other, to equip each other, to hold one another accountable to our walk with Christ, our seeking of the things above and setting our minds on the things above. Right, to check in with one another. Because this world can be wearisome. And listen, if you are missing that, the presence of other people in your life who are assisting you and whom you are assisting, then why not connect in one of these groups? In fact, we've got a several new ones starting. One of them in particular has already started. Daniel Byman and his wife Megan are leading one. They're leading one, and they would love to connect with you and answer any questions you have about when it is, where it is, what they're doing in that. Daniel, I'm going to just ask Daniel Fuby at the kiosk in the back of the room as we leave today to answer any questions you might have about that life group, about how to get connected, where you're assisting and being assisted in your seeking and your setting, in this active engagement and pursuit of living out your new identity. Now, I said a moment ago, this seeking and setting, it can, it can be wearisome because it requires effort in our lives. And so as we close this morning, I just want to ask and answer this question. What do we do when we grow weary of trying to bend our will to love the things that God loves and despise and detest the things that God hates? What do we do when we grow weary of filling our minds with thoughts of heaven and trying to press those into our lives? Let me tell you what we do. We look forward to the end. Hmm. See, much of what motivates our action in the present are thoughts of the future, isn't it? That's why you're saving for retirement. Hmm. In the present right now, to prepare for the future. So you're thinking about what is to come. And in verse 4, Paul says, when Christ, who is your life, now, presently, when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Paul says that we will appear with him in glory, he's not referring to a place, but to an experience. The promise of sharing in the glorified life of Christ himself. It's the promise of the eradication of every evil and fleshly impulse. Can I get an amen? It's the promise of everlasting deliverance from greed and pride and lust and envy and unforgiveness. It's the promise that our whole being, our body, our soul, our mind, spirit, and affections, they will experience and forever live in the power and glory and purity of God himself. See, if you want to put it simply, church, as we look forward to the end and the future, we will glow in glory. I love the way John Stott says it. As he asks the question, how will... God be glorified in relation to his people. Listen to what he says. He says it's not going to be among them as if they will be the theater or stadium in which he appears to show off his glory. Nor is it by them as if they will be spectators, the audience who watch and witness. Nor will it be through them or by means of them as if they will be mirrors which reflect 
His image and glory, although in a sense all those things are true. He says, but rather, from Colossians 3, it will be in them as if they will be a filament which itself glows with light and heat when an electric current passes through it. Isn't that a beautiful picture? See, a light bulb can light up a room as electricity passes through that filament that's contained inside that glass fixture. And yet, without electricity, the filament is powerless. And we are those filaments that will be lit up and we will glow in effortless glory for all of eternity. So continue to press forward now. Because one day, one day, you'll be free from all the trappings of the flesh. Everything that keeps you from setting and seeking everything that keeps you from living out this new identity. So when you grow weary in the present, look to the future and preach to yourself and say, one day I will glow effortlessly in glory as the glory of Christ will be in me. This is the beginning of the so what, church? Live out your new identity in Christ. Reorient your entire life around who you are through dying with Him, being buried with Him, being raised with Him. One day, being glorified in Him. And right now, having Him as your life because you are hidden in Him. So seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above. And see these adaptations that take place in your soul and in your life through this daily pursuit, this daily contemplation. Let us give ourselves to that as His people. Let's pray together. Father, where we are weary, May you fill us with energy. May you meet us in our places of weakness with your strength. Where we are discouraged. May you bring encouragement by your spirit. Father, may we embrace this upward call that we have received through our union with Christ, through our adoption as your children, of having our past life sealed in a filing cabinet in the base of a courthouse through our adoption and having a new file opened and a new life and identity given to us. May we live that. May we breathe that. 
May it be so true of us that the world around us sees this beautiful preview of what is to come and that they would be so attracted to that reality. That they too would come to faith in your Son. May you help us help each other to seek the things that are above, where your Son is seated with all honor and power and glory. And may you help us to set our mind on the things above, to contemplate them, turn them over in our heads until they become realities in our lives. We pray all this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus himself. Amen. I invite you to stand, church, as we sing in response to what God has said. As we lift our voices, just encourage you maybe to consider Where is it that perhaps the things below have co-opted, co-opted the good things that God has blessed you with and made them into ultimate or God things? Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.